In his best-selling book, Basic Christianity, John Stott explores who Christ is and what that means for us as his followers. In his book, he writes, Jesus never concealed the fact that his religion included a demand as well as an offer. Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. His offer of salvation always brings with it the requirement that we obey him. He gave no encouragement at all to those who applied to become his disciples without thinking it through. He brought no pressure to bear on any inquirer. He sent irresponsible enthusiasts away with nothing. Luke tells us of three people who either volunteered or were invited to follow Jesus, but not one of them passed the Lord's tests. There was also the rich young ruler, an individual who was good, earnest, and attractive in many ways, but who wanted eternal life on his own terms. He went away sad with his wealth intact, but possessing neither eternal life nor Christ. Stott does an excellent job of helping us understand that following Christ is not something that ought to be done casually, nor is it done on our terms. Following Christ is a privilege, and it requires his followers to respond rightly. That is, by obeying Christ's commands. This is important because there are many distorted understandings of what it means to be a Christian, about what the Christian life is all about. One of them is the belief that in order to be right with God, one must simply believe in Jesus. And once you do this, you can continue going on with your life, living however you want, with Jesus on the side. This way of relating to Jesus is unbiblical as it only seeks to turn to Jesus as a monopoly get out of jail card, but it, it requires no relationship with him. It simply is a mere acknowledgement of Christ. Now, while it's true that salvation comes by faith in Christ alone, it goes beyond that. Belief in Jesus requires obedience. Belief in Jesus requires obedience. And in our passage this morning, we will answer the question, what does it mean to obey God? And what does that look like? What does it mean to obey God? And what, what does that look like? And the answer comes in three points, which will set up our time together this morning. Obeying God requires receiving his word respond and responding to his word. Obeying God requires receiving his word and responding to his word. Then obedience will show itself by being rightly related to God. Obedience will show itself by being rightly related to God. I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1 where we will be reading verses 19 through 27, 19 through 27. 
And James, if you turn to your Bible, open up to the middle. If you turn to the right, it will be towards the end. Right after uh, the book of Hebrews, you will find it. Hear now these words from God. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. So far in our time in James, we've looked at the first 18 verses of chapter 1. And these verses have been very helpful in understanding our passage for today because they provide the the context which helps us understand what God requires of his people. It's also helpful because it sets the foundation for understanding the rest of the letter. One of the main underlying themes of the epistle of James is found in the introduction. So if you want to keep your Bibles open there in the book of James, um, we'll look back at verse 1, where James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When reading an epistle, one of the ways to find out what the letter is about is you can read the introduction because epistles generally come with introductions. But then you can also read the conclusion. Now, interestingly enough, James, the way that he ends this epistle is a little different than other epistles. But generally speaking, if you read the beginning and you read the end, you can get an idea of what the letter is going to be about. You know, sometimes for you students out there, before you read your book, you probably go to the back and you read a little paragraph and it'll tell you what the book is all about right or if you're a little bit more advanced you read the first paragraph of the chapter and you read the last paragraph of the chapter and it tells you what that chapter is about right so similarly when you read an epistle you can get an idea of what the epistle is about by reading the beginning and the end and here in the book of james james gives us a clue as to what this letter is going to be about And here the clue is found where he describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important because 
James, we already saw, was the half-brother of Jesus. James doesn't pull out the I'm Jesus' brother card, therefore listen to what I have to say in my letter. James actually says, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is important because it lets us know how James saw himself. Right? James was a leader, was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He, he, he was very well known, very respected, but yet he chooses to identify himself as a servant. And that gives us an understanding of how we ought to see ourselves. We ought to see ourselves as servants of the Lord. And we'll see why, because this is important for us. The Bible describes God's people in a variety of ways. One of them, God's people. Another, children of God. But here James references uh, to uh, believers not only as brothers and sisters, but by implication as servants of the Lord. And it's important to know this because this is a great privilege. We have been given the privilege and the responsibility of serving the living God. Living life in God's service, though, requires a denial of self and submission to God's will for our lives. This is because we are no longer our own. If you have been redeemed by Christ, you now belong to Christ. So all of your desires are to be put to death as you submit to the, to the desires of our good and loving king. We know that this is good because James tells us that God is a good father who gives good gifts. And one of the best gifts that he's given his people is the gift of regeneration, as we saw in James chapter 1, of being saved. God, out of his own initiative, moved towards us to save us from the mess that we got ourselves into because of sin. Sin created a barrier between us and God, and God moved towards us by sending his son to seek and to save and thus makes us children, but also servants. And so we see the privilege then. The scripture tells us that not everyone who believes in God, or not everyone is a child of God. That is a common misconception. You know, you've probably heard it said, we're all children of God, right? But that's actually not biblical. The Bible says that to all who believed, to all who received him, God has given them the privilege of becoming children of God. There's that word, privilege, right? The question or confusion that people sometimes come across after being saved is, okay, so now what? You know, I've repented of my sins and I've believed in Christ. Now what? Well, James wants us to know that being saved comes with this privilege of serving God. But serving Him is also a means of representing Him in this world. And in order to do this, it requires obedience. Obedience to God's commands. So what does it mean to obey God? What does it mean to obey God? 
Well, obeying God means to receive God's word. And we see this in verses 19 through 21. Obeying God means to receive God's word. It's believed that one of the best ways to find out what something is made of is by putting it to the test, right? And testing is something that we're familiar with. If you've ever been uh, in the market to buy a car, whether new or used, we test drive the car, right, to see if, it, if it's worth it, right? Or for, uh, you know, for foodies, we love to taste test samples of ice cream or certain products at Costco um, before we buy the product, right? Well, in James 1, verses 2 to 4, we learn that testing or trials, they are to be expected in life, both for Christians and for non-Christians. And part of this is because we live in a fallen and broken world. God created a good world, a perfect world, where everything was good and flawless. But sin has distorted God's good creation, and thus we live in this fallen and broken world. Things went from good and perfect to bad to worse to where we are today, like an avalanche effect. Just picked up, and it got bigger and uglier and worse and worse. That's why the world is uh, fallen, and that's why we experience trials in this world. The difference for the Christian, though, is that God allows and, and even brings trials into our lives. And the purpose is to make us more like Christ. To make us more like Christ. We also learn that when we find ourselves in trials, one of the things that we encounter is the temptation to blame or to even accuse God of wrongdoing. But James helps us fight that temptation of false belief by explaining that God isn't tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt people. And to prove God's goodness, he points us to the fact that God is the one who took the initiative to save us. We didn't reach out. He moved towards us and he saved us even though we were dead in our sins and we were his enemies it is god who's done this and so we see the goodness of god but there's another form of temptation that we can experience when we find ourselves in trials and that temptation comes in the form of our actions in the form of our actions trials are uncomfortable but they can also be difficult and even painful. Because of that, when we are left to our natural self, it will cause a reaction in us. And more often than not, it will cause a sinful reaction, oftentimes seen in anger, which can manifest itself in many ways. It can come out in the form of cursing, grumbling, complaining, murdering with our words, offending with our remarks. Now to this, James says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person, that is every Christian, brother and sister, right? He's writing to Christians. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's verse 19. Notice the description. Quick to hear, 
slow to speak and slow to anger. What's the way that most people respond? It's the opposite, right? We're slow to hear, we're quick to speak, and we're quick to anger. James says that being a servant of the Lord Jesus requires us to lay down our desires or even our preferences to respond sinfully. And instead, we're called to receive God's word. That is, however, God calls us to respond in any given circumstance. This is applicable to any trial that you find yourself in, whether it be conflict with a spouse, with your disobedient children, an argument with a neighbor, disagreement with your boss or your coworker, various life circumstances like you get your car crashed into, people not holding up their end of the bargain, etc., etc., etc. Trials, they're all around us. When you find yourself in, in a trial, God calls his people to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now let's look at these briefly. Be quick to hear. What does God have to say about your situation? Is what you ought to be thinking when you find yourself in a trial. Well, ask yourself, how would God want me to respond in this situation? The Lord has promised that his spirit indwells his people. His spirit will bring the truth of his word to our memory. That is, as we study God's word, as we read it, as we pray it, as we meditate on it, as we listen to it on Sunday mornings, we are intaking the word of God. And when we find ourselves in trials, difficult circumstances, rather than being quick to respond sinfully, we are called to be quick to listen, quick to hear. We ought to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, how would you have me respond in this situation? Pay attention. The Lord will illumine your understanding and will bring to memory the truths of his word. But we're also called to be slow to speak. When you're offended, it's easy to say whatever comes to mind the first thing that comes to mind. And oftentimes, the first thing that comes to mind is doing whatever feels right in the moment. Whether it's speaking the truth but without love, or whether it's saying something offensive to right the so-called wrong. Refrain yourself from being quick to speak and, and listen to what God would have you do. And then he also says that we are to be slow to anger. Notice that this doesn't say, don't be angry. That's not what it says, right? Sometimes in conversations with people, it's misquoted. Like, don't be, and don't be angry. Be slow to speak, quick to listen, and don't be angry. But it says that we are to be slow to anger. This is because anger in and of itself is not sinful. Anger is not a bad thing. And some of you are like, huh? Like, what? Because most of the associations that we have with anger are sinful, right? Well, what is anger? 
to understand anger, we need to look to God, the one who has designed us with this ability to be angry. You see, in the scriptures, God is described as an angry God. You know, most of us, when we hear God, a description of who God is, we hear God is love. He's merciful, he's kind, he's gracious, he's compassionate, he's just, he's holy, he's righteous. We can go on and on. But you almost never hear God is an angry God, right? But it's biblical. We hear of the anger of the Lord being kindled against his people because of their sin, because of their enemies, because of injustice, because of the destruction that sin has brought on the world. Now, a lot of this understanding of uh, anger, I cannot take credit for. Uh, it comes from the scriptures, but uh, I've found a small, uh, medium book uh, by uh, David Paulison called Good and Angry. Highly recommend it. It's a great book. Helps you understand what anger is. Um, but in his book, David Paulison defines anger as being about displeasure. Anger has to do with displeasure towards something. And when it comes to God, it's displeasure towards something that's wrong. And he also describes anger as being judgmental. That is, when we are angry, we are making a statement about what is valuable. Similar with God. When he exercises his anger, he's making a statement about what he finds valuable. And so anger, uh, Paulson says, he continues saying, our response in anger, it includes a perceived wrong, a stance of disapproval, and a move towards action. When you find yourself in a trial, when you find yourself in a situation that's provoking anger in you, it includes a perceived wrong, a stance of disapproval, and a move towards action. It's the way that God responds to that which is wrong. It's what moves him to take action and correct the wrong. It's what moved him to send his son to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, God created a good and perfect world. He created us to be in relationship with Him. But something happened. Sin. Sin has caused a, bear, uh, it's caused, um, uh, a separation between us and God. And because God is holy, He cannot and will not dwell with anything that is unholy. Sin, as we learned in James chapter 1 doesn't just, uh, it's not just, they're not just actions. It, they begin with a desire in the heart. And then when you think of conception, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. And that's what sin in our first parents, Adam and Eve, did. When Paul tells us in the book of Romans that when sin entered the world, sin didn't come solo. Sin brought along with itself its best friend, death. And this is why death exists in the world. And because God didn't create the world to be this way, God was moved in anger 
towards sin, towards Satan, and he entered to do good. You see how anger can be a good thing? Because it, God perceived something to be wrong. His word, his world was broken. It was distorted. And he was moved to make a judgmental action. That's wrong, and I'm going to do something about it. So he moves towards us. He seeks and he saves. And so in this sense, anger is good. So anger is something that is good by God's design. Being made in his image and likeness, we are wired to be angry as God is moved in anger. So, God so anger is a God-given emotion, right? It's meant to move us to act when we experience or when we witness something wrong. For example, if I'm driving in my car and I'm at a red light and I see an old woman being robbed uh, or pushed or... Um, being hurt, that should cause anger in me to say, park, hop out of my car, step in, and help. Right? Anger is a good thing. But is that the way that we usually practice anger? No. Right? Anger, is, it's meant to be in relation to God's word. It's meant to be in relation to how God says things ought to be. But normally, our anger is triggered by the perception that we have of something that hasn't gone right according to our standard. Right? I'm offended. Oh, I'm going to respond with anger. Right? I could be offended by truth. Jesus spoke the truth. And people were offended and angered. And they were moved to kill him. Right? So anger has to do with our emotions, and our emotions are distorted by sin. We were created to live for God, to represent him in this world, but sin has bent us out of shape, and we no longer live this way. We don't live this way on our own. Our greatest problem is sin. Right? We respond negatively, or we don't respond at all. Now, notice what happens. So this is why we're called to be slow to anger, right? Be slow to anger. It doesn't say don't be angry. It just says be slow. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Now, notice what happens when the anger of man is produced, as we see here in verse 20. When the anger of man is produced, it does not produce the righteousness of God, meaning it does not lead to living the way the children of God ought to live. It does not lead the servants of God to represent God the way he ought to be represented. It derails us from our service to God. It represents God falsely. Now, we are people that believe in the word of God. We believe that God is sovereign, right? Nothing in this world happens by coincidence. It doesn't happen by chance. Every single thing in this world happens because God has allowed it to or God has caused it to, but it is under God's control. If that is true, then all of our trials are under God's will. Even though they might not feel like they're coming from God, even though we might not see what God is doing, they are under God's control. 
And if that is true, then what James tells us in chapter 1 is true as well. We can count it all joy when we find ourselves in various trials because God is at work using your trials to make you more like Jesus Christ. That's awesome. But we don't think about it that way. We think, I don't want to be in this situation. Lord, get me out of here. Right? God is sovereign over all things. So when you come into a trial or conflict with your spouse, your neighbor, your coworker, your child, God has allowed that to happen, and he's doing a bunch of things in it, some of which we're able to see from the scriptures, which is, one, he's making us more like Christ. Right? The righteousness of God is being produced. He's making us to be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. Why? Because we're immature, we're incomplete, and we lack because of sin, because of the fall. And it is God working by his spirit, his word, and he uses circumstances to make us more like Jesus. Right? So if that's true, then it's important for us to know how to respond in those situations. I love what Paul Tripp says in um, one of his books, Parenting, regarding anger in parenting. He says something to the effect of, in parenting, when your child causes you to be angry, let's say you get home, right? Let's say maybe you're fixing up your home, you just painted the walls, or maybe you don't even have to be remodeling, but you get home, and you find that your little three-year-old has scribbled all over the wall. Or you're with your little one and he or she uh, sees that the bathroom door is open and they see that the toilet seat is up and they go and they have a ball and wash their hands, clean their face with toilet water, and you've told them not to. And they go back and they do it again like five seconds after, right? It, it boils sometimes anger. Didn't I tell you not to do that? Why did you do that? Right? Paul Tripp says that in those moments when we respond sinfully and we say, you little booger, or whatever it is that you say, right? There might be more uglier words, right? After scolding your children offensively, he says, I've never heard a child say, Daddy, Mommy, thank you for being sinful against me. I love God more as a result of that. That's never the situation. That never happens. Why? Because James says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But when we're slow to speak, when we're quick to listen, when we're slow to and we're slow to anger. We can regulate our emotions because we might be feeling a bunch of different things. But we say, Lord, I'm tempted to respond in anger, in sinful anger. Right? My brand new iPad was just dropped and oh, that's so much money. Right? My, my most prized possession was you know, ruined, whatever it is. 
Lord, you're sovereign over this situation. You've allowed this to happen. Please, Lord, how am I to respond in this situation? How would you have me respond so that I would represent you rightly, so that I would produce the righteousness of God, so that you would produce it in me, so that I would bring about your will and your glory in this situation? You see, our response is very important if we are children of God, if we are servants of God, because how we respond will either rightly represent our Lord or it will wrongly represent our Lord. Think about sin, sinning ang in anger against like someone that you don't know, somebody that crashes into you and you respond in anger and, and, and you, you know, you cuss or you, you know, say bad words. And then you think like, dang, I want to share the gospel with them. How are you going to do that? How does that happen? All of a sudden, you can't, you don't, right? It's not going to produce the righteousness of God. So this is why it's important then for us to respond in a way that God would have us respond. Now, um, Carnal anger is wrong because it's self-centered. It focuses on us rather than on God. Now, James calls us to get rid of it. He says, get rid of it. Do away with it. So how do you do this? Well, he says, get rid of filth and wickedness. Put away all filth, filth, filthiness and rampant wickedness. And the idea here is, take, is of taking cl dirty clothes off. Taking off dirty garments. I love the way that Ephesians puts it. Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4, 22 through 24. I'll let you read that on your own time. But here is a process for change. Paul says that we're called to put off the old self. And normally you would jump into it and then we put on the new self, right? But that's not what he says. He says, put off the old self, be renewed in your thinking, and then put on the new self. This is the idea that we have here. James says, any form of wickedness, of evil that's in you, that you are feeding yourself, get away from it. Do away with it. How do you do this? Well, Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So what you fill your heart with is bound to come right back up. That's a biblical principle, right? So what are you listening to? What kind of music do you listen to? What kind of talk show hosts or talk shows do you listen to? Podcasts? What kind of movies do you watch? What kind of TV shows do you watch? What kind of literature do you read? What kind of people do you hang out with? The things that you surround yourself with or that you give yourself to is inevitably going to be poured into your heart. And even though it doesn't come out right then and there, it will. Right? So if you are argumentative, and you love watching shows or music or surround yourself with people that are argumentative, it's going to come right back out when you find yourself in a trial. So you have to get rid of those things. Get rid of the things that you're filling your heart with so that you wouldn't be that way. And fill your heart with the things of God, the things that are peaceable and loving and pure, right? The things of God. Because if you fill your heart with those things, guess what? That's what's going to come right back out. Right? So what are you filling your heart with? Second, 
Obeying God leads you to respond to God's word. The exhortation to obey God is given to all Christians, but there's a warning to not be deceived. Okay? There's a warning to not be deceived. That's because it's possible to think that you're a Christian when you're really not. Verse 22. In verse 22, um, we read, But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Brothers and sisters, the point that James makes here is that simply listening to the word of God does not equal obedience. Simply listening does not equal obedience. That means that you can come to church every Sunday and not miss a day. You can read many Christian books. You can listen to many sermons. But if you're only listening and your intent is not to practice, you're deceiving yourself. That's because listening is not, does not equal obedience. James says to be obedient, you have to do something with what you're listening um, to. So as you're listening this morning, let me ask you, do you have the intent of practicing what you're listening to right now? Like when you came this morning, did you have the heart disposition to say, Lord, please teach me. Please show me my, my sinful ways. Please show me where I've gone off track. And please help me walk to walk down the path that you would have me walk. Or... Do we take notes, put them in our Bible, get home, file them, and boop, like, I don't know what was said last week or the week before that. What are we doing with what we're listening to? Because the problem here is the disposition of the heart to not want to do anything with what you're listening to. If anything, you gain for yourself more judgment because you are now knowing what's right and still don't do it. So... Obeying God's word leads you to respond to God's word by obedience. But the warning here is that if you're only a listener, then it, the Bible, James, compares this person to someone who wakes up in the morning, goes to the restroom or wherever you have a mirror, you see yourself in the mirror, and you look like, okay, like what's wrong? You know, my hair, okay, here, here, okay. And then walks away and doesn't do anything about it. What was the purpose of looking at oneself in the mirror if you're not going to do anything about it? It's pointless. You shouldn't have looked in the mirror to begin with, right? You could have saved yourself a couple of minutes and gotten to work on time, right? James says that this kind of listening but not doing anything about it is deceitful. We We deceive ourselves, thinking that we are servants or children of God when we really are not. Brothers and sisters, we ought to obey. We ought to do something with what we are receiving. We must be doers of the word. And the third thing that we find is that obeying God is evidenced by being rightly relating, related to God. We must relate rightly to God. And we have two examples of religion a worthless religion and a worthy religion. First, the worthless religion. The worthless religion, here in verse 26 and 27, it says, If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. The idea here of, is of external actions. You 
Sunday morning, you get dressed, go to church, you give your offering, you, uh, you sing a couple of songs, you may even fellowship with other people, right? But your tongue is uncontrolled. You, you're sinfully angered. Uh, in your anger, you sin. You, th- th- there's no internal change. It's all external, right? You're not heeding the words of doing. You're simply listening. You listen and you do the externals. That, brothers and sisters, does not equal obedience. That is a religion that doesn't help at all. James tells us here that um, externals are not what the Lord is looking for. Really quickly, I will read to you from Matthew 15, 8. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you for the sake of time. But Matthew 15, 8, you can jot that down. Jesus, speaking to religious folk, he tells them this, uh, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He was speaking to the Pharisees, to the scribes. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, it's all external, right? There's no internal change. God warns us about this. If you're only about externals but no internal, it doesn't do you any good. But worthy religion, God says, is internal change that's manifested in external activities. It's internal change that's manifested in external activities or an external response. And there's two ways that James says uh, our religion is worthy or it's what pleases God. The first, uh, we continue reading here, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So two things. One, a religion that pleases God is a religion where one loves one's neighbor by caring for the neighbors uh, that are in need. Loving your neighbors that are in need. Here, the widow and the orphan in this time were of the most needy. Why? Because widows depended on, depended on their husbands uh, for livelihood. Orphans had no one, right? So it, it refers to the most needy. So God's servants are characterized by representing the God who cares for the needy. We were the most needy of people because we were dead in our sins and our transgressions. And God showed us his love by sending his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Boom. There it goes. Religion that is worthy, religion that pleases God is loving your neighbors who are in need. Second, loving God through ongoing personal holiness. James says to keep oneself unstained from the world. John tells us, do not love the world or the things that are in this world. Right? If the love of the world is in us, then we, the love of God is not in us. Right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. If you are practicing those things, you love the world. And Jesus also says, 
that if you declare yourself to be a friend of the world, you also declare yourself to be an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways, right? So pure religion is loving neighbor, loving for our neighbors that are in need, uh, and actually being attentive to them, but also loving God through personal holiness. Don't love the world. Turn away from the things that are worldly. And you can do this by analyzing your life. What are some things in my life that are worldly that I need to let go of? Now, we might be deceiving ourselves and kind of justify ourselves, so get some help. Ask brothers and sisters in the church, if you're married, ask your spouse, uh, ask your accountability partners, do you see anything in my life that is worldly that I'm not aware of? Please show me. Because I don't want to be friends with the world. I want to walk in holiness. Now, Christian, this is possible because we are God's uh, people. Through the new covenant, God has promised to give us his spirit, to give us a new heart. He will write his laws on our heart, and he will cause us to obey. This is possible because of what Christ has done. So you are now able to do this before you weren't able to do this. So the question is, will you, what will you do with this? Will you give yourself to being people who are marked by loving your neighbors, especially those who are in need and ongoing personal holiness? Or will you not? Right? Because act, acceptable religion before the Lord is... And here we find the whole law summed up. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first greatest commandment. And the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Boom. Greatest commandment, second greatest commandment is the religion that is acceptable to God. Right? So we're able to do this. Non-believer, if you're not a Christian and you're joining us today, we're happy that you're with us. Thank you for visiting us. We think that we believe that God has brought you here so that you would hear his word. So you may be hearing this and you may be thinking, okay, so I need to do the word. But I have news for you. You will not be able to do this on your own because there's a war between your flesh and your allegiance to yourself and God. Right? And the only way that you will be able to do this and to obey is by surrendering to Christ, by coming to him and acknowledging that you have sinned against him. The Bible says that if we repent and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that he died for our sins, he promises to, free, to freely forgive us and to embrace us and accept us as his children. He will then help you to do this. And this is the free gift of salvation that he gives to us. He doesn't say write a check. He doesn't say name it and claim it. He doesn't say work for it. He says repent from your sins and believe on me. Today is the day of salvation. So dear friend, won't you come to Christ today and be blessed in your doing? In conclusion, the Lord has spoken to us today in his word and he calls us as we look at the mirror of his word, he calls us to put away wickedness, to put away that which is worldly, to put away sinful anger, and to obey him, to receive his word and to do something with it, to do it.
that we would find blessing in doing it. We will find perfect, we will find freedom as we look at Christ and the gospel. The freedom from sin, freedom from bondage of sin, and we will be blessed as we are rewarded in heaven when we make it uh, to his presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your loving kindness to us in Christ. We praise you for your word. We pray that you would help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, would you please forgive us for the ways that we have willingly disobeyed you and rejected you. Um, And please, Lord, help us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger so that we would represent you rightly, so that we would bring about the righteousness of God. We thank you and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.